Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Amen. Okay, you can get a wee seat. If you did not get a chance to get a drink or you would like to top your iced tea or iced coffee up or whatever, please feel free. It's a good time. There's some more outside. Um, But good to see you. Good morning, church. If you came in after we'd already started, my name is Laura. And um, if you've joined in the last little while or you've started coming and I've not had a chance to meet you, I would love to say hello. Please do stick around just for a moment at the end and say hi. I would love to meet you. You're also very welcome if you've been here a long time. Welcome back. Good to see you guys as well. It would be a little bit rich for me to call what we've been doing the last couple of weeks a summer mini-series. Um, it's been more of like an extended share time post-sabbatical for me. And I think I knew I was going to have three weeks to preach just when I came home. So I could have picked like one major theme from being away and like really like honed in on that and expanded upon that. But um, I'm a little bit more of a more is more kind of person, so I think I've gone for the approach of like three things that resonated deeply uh, over the last couple of weeks. So it meant that two weeks ago, we looked at Hagar's story, thinking about the God who sees, the God who sees the unreached people of our world, people who have not heard about who Jesus is. He's moving in their midst, but also the same God who sees me, sees you, is the only one who is able to perfectly remove our shame because Jesus has been honored to the highest place. Last week, we looked at the three different accounts of the woman who comes with the alabaster jar of perfume, thinking about our life as worshipers. What does it mean for me to choose the too much response that looks like too much until you see Jesus and then you know actually this is the right amount for who he is. For today, when I was praying about it, I felt like the Lord took me to Daniel chapter three and to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as heroes for the next generation. I see in their example a call to the next generation to live a life of conviction in the context of friendship because they understand God's power. And that's where we'll go today. Conviction, friendship, power, spoilers. I've told you everything. That's where we're going. I think there's something here for all of us, no matter your age, though, because I know if I feel like this is what God is calling the next generation to, I better live this if I'm going to raise up anyone, if I'm going to encourage anyone. I am a millennial through and through. But you probably know by now, I have just had a deeply immersive experience for the last six months with Gen Z. I told you last week, I mentioned that half of my year group in the course that I was doing, uh, 250 people, half of them were 18, and the other half were mostly from Gen Z as well, born between 1996 and 2010. So I can really say that I did life with Gen Z. I shared a room, a small room, with eight other girls, 
the bathroom lock didn't work, and there wasn't even a mirror in the bathroom that you could give yourself a pep talk in. It was like, you're here and you're here. We ate together, we talked together, we worshiped together, we prayed together, we unclogged bathrooms together, we washed about a million dishes together in the dish pit. I did life in and with Gen Z. And I remember one day standing in the midst of like a corporate worship context with them and just being like, God, why this way? Like, why am I here now? And why this school and why this place? Because why am I all over the world? Like, there's so many bases. There's schools of every size and every variety. And yet, I was like, okay, Lord, why have you got me here? And I felt like he said to me, Laura, this is not an accident that you are here in the midst of these young people. Like, look around you. You are surrounded by the generation that I am calling you to right now. Soak it up. Sometimes I think when we look at younger generations, we can struggle to see past some of the like usual human brokenness coming out in different colors. But I got to see firsthand how God is raising up a next generation to love him wholeheartedly. There's no nominal Christianity in the next generation. He's raising up these Jesus followers who are giving it their guts. They're giving it their everything. I have so much hope for the next generation, and I have more desire than I had before that God would include us here in Glasgow, in this church, in that story of what he's doing with the next generation in our times. On the other side of the coin, there's a phenomenon called Gen Z dread. Gen Z dread, which is a name that's been given to the widespread fear that apparently they feel about the future which honestly isn't all that surprising when you think of what they've been exposed to in their youth through the media. Things like the climate crisis, terrorism, global pandemics, to name but a few. They've been called a profoundly anxious generation. And some people are noticing how this is leading Gen Z towards adopting a fear power worldview rather than so much a guilt-innocence one, so where they're being driven more by fear than maybe some of us were, and in face of that fear, they're trying to find ways to harness power for the sake of stability in the unknown. Many cultures have held this worldview throughout history, and its key features are loyalty to the powers that be, whatever they are, in return for this protection, in return for empowerment. One little example of how we're seeing this play out right now is in the rise of popularity of things like crystals, where like demand is skyrocketing. It used to be quite niche to be into crystals. Now it's more mainstream. I was in a charity shop just the other day, and one of the little like impulse purchases that you could make was crystals, um, just just there. We're becoming more animistic in the West. We're starting to believe that more and more physical things have a spiritual power. And so anything like that, we're looking to for empowerment, for protection. Brian mentioned the other week that um, when I saw him for a little bit, when I came home, we'd been talking just a little bit about how things uh, like TikTok are feeding into fascinations with witchcraft in our day and age. And the hashtag witch talk has amassed, amassed over 19.8 billion views alone. Now, that's probably something that for the vast majority of us, we just don't need to even look at that. <laughs> probably very few people are, are need to like understand and know what's going on in, in detail. For most of, that's, most of us, it's probably just a thing not to look at, but it's happening and it's out there. 
where my generation were reading Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, and turning atheistic in their turning away from God, the next generation is increasingly spiritual, it seems, and looking for ways to control things by accessing a higher power. In this context, I want us to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if this story in Daniel chapter 3 is familiar to you, maybe just ask God to highlight something new today. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's 30 verses, so bear with me. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can. It'll be on the screen as well, though. So it starts in verse, uh, I'm starting in verse 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned to piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. A fear, power, tension in the world is not a new reality. It is present and it has been present because the enemy has promised power and weaponized fear throughout history. Even with Jesus in Matthew 4, when he's tempted by the devil, there's this bit where he takes him up the top of a hill and says, look out over all the kingdoms. I will give you all of this. I will give you all this power if you will bow down and worship me. And like Jesus, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down in this moment And as such, they are examples for us of what faithfulness looks like in a fear power world. Now, I am saying power to be understood, but please know that my accent is all well and good. This is just an act of sacrificial love today. And then I will say power like any good Northern Irish person again. So just in case anyone's worried, it's fine. It's a decision I have made. If we look at the story again, it is all about power, power and fear. Power and fear, I undid it, I undid it. Okay, if we look at the story again, it is all about power and fear. It's a king exerting power in order that he would be feared because it feeds his power when he is, and fear is his source of power, and his power depends on the fear. The story begins with King Nebuchadnezzar building a massive golden statue that everyone can see. This is a never forget I am in power move everywhere that you would see. You would see the statue before you. Never forget that I am in power. He summons people throughout. Summoning people is a power move. If I was to summon Kelly right now, that would be cheeky. (laughs) Summoning people is a power move. The narrative has this almost comical listing time and time again of satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials. It's like, are we getting this? Look at their role. Look at their status. Look at all of this power. There's a herald who proclaims a command, power, power, power. As soon as you hear the sound, you have to bow down. You need to immediately obey. He is so powerful or else, or else you will be thrown into a blazing furnace All this earthly power is fear of punishment based. Bow down or else. 
There's a pandering to the power out of fear. May the king live forever. Lots of your majesties. The issue for Nebuchadnezzar, the stumbling block here, is when he's not being paid attention to because his power is only so powerful as it is responded to by the fear and the attention of the people in his world. He gives these big, dramatic reactions of rage, building the image of a king who is to be feared. And then he says, then what God will rescue you from my hand? Like, what God will rescue you from the power that I have, when in reality, his power is a fire. It's a display of power, and they say, wait a second, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Actually, we have this entrance of a higher power at this point in the story where they say, our God actually is more powerful than your fiery display of power. The command is so urgent and the furnace is so hot that it kills the soldiers who throw them in. The fiery display of power, it's real, it has power, but the whole story hinges on a moment of like apparent fearlessness where they say, regardless of the outcome, we're not going to worship your gods and we're not going to bow down to your statue. Are they fearless or are they just refusing to submit to fear? Because there's a greater power that then is present in the story. There's suddenly no more summoning no more summoning, no more shouting in rage, but instead the king leaps to his feet and shouts, servants of the most high God. Suddenly, there are names that are used the whole way through the story, like almost again comically frequently, are the names that they've been given by this new empire. But then he calls them by their names, their new names they've been given, but then says, servants of the most high God, come out, everything changes in the presence of a higher power. It's like he suddenly sees who they are. And the presence of this higher power, the higher power is not displayed in the, in the display, but in the presence. In this story, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think we see a life of conviction in the context of friendship because they understood God's power. I'm going to define a conviction as a belief of which we are thoroughly convinced. These guys are thoroughly convinced of God's power in this story, and it comes out in a couple of different ways. Firstly, their convincedness interrupts the cultural flow of the powers that be. It's like, all is well, there's a big statue, everyone's bowing down, the king's being revered in the way that he wants to be revered, but then there are some Jews who pay no attention to you, your majesty. And I see here that even a small number of young people who will direct their worship to God alone will be paid attention to. It is enough to interrupt the powers that be. Secondly, their conviction leads them into the furnace. Not the king's power. They could have chosen they could have bowed down, they could have changed course, but their conviction, their convincedness leads them in. They essentially choose it, and it shows us that conviction in life doesn't just stop us from things, but it will actually lead us into things. And we read all of this, it's impossible not to, we read this through a lens of knowing what's going to happen. 
For most of us, we know that there's about to be a fourth person in the fire. We love that. It's good. But if we can imagine for a second that we didn't know how it was going to go, because these guys did not know how it was going to go, and we see that, yes, God can do so much with just a little bit of faith. Praise God. But there's something about convincedness that will lead us forward into the unknown like nothing else can. And in a context like theirs and like ours, it's expected that your allegiance would shift depending on who has the most power. So we see this play out in life when if people have the most backing or if things are the loudest or whatever ideas are most commonly accepted, there's almost like that gravitational pull within us to ally ourselves with those things as well. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an unmoving allegiance. And as they go into that fire, it testifies to a greater power that the king did not know. A young generation with conviction would point to the same thing. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he's writing about Jesus' victory over death, and then he writes, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. If we hold tight, if we stand firm, it shouts, look, look at what I'm holding on to, look at who I'm holding on to. When we think of conviction, I know sometimes I think of conviction being, okay, I have, someone has a conviction not to do a certain thing. I, you know, I sort of like others can, but I won't. And those things are good and important. But I think above all else, we share a need for a deep conviction that we are loved, that we are loved by a powerful God because we know there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Like we see in this story, only love can deal with our fear. And so much of our brokenness, if you peel back a layer or two, it's just fruit from a root of fear. Fear that is so often tied to that question at the core of who we are, am I loved? And I don't think it's any different for the generations that are coming after us. The question remains the same. I saw an interview with Harry Styles the other day, just a little clip of one on Instagram, and he was talking about the music industry, and he said something like, people in that industry are desperate to know that they are loved, but success is so fickle and the love doesn't last. If we don't know that we are loved, we will never rest. Only love will let us stand firm. So young people, knowing that they are loved and standing firm all the days of their lives, that is the very best thing that we could hope to come out of this church. Those are the greatest testimonies ever told. As you read Daniel, if you read through the whole story, conviction leading to holiness is a dominant theme. We see that it's not passive. He resolves, chapter one, not to eat the food that would be defiled. It, it plays out in a very practical way, and it's not reactionary. It's not like, I will do something once I'm challenged on something, or once I see negative consequences play out in my life, I'll stop something. It's a consistent pursuit for these guys. And being set apart for them in the small things, like what they're eating, 
Is there training ground for an outpouring of God's power and for influence among men? They're trained for three years, but it's their choice to not eat the defiled food that seems to lead to God giving them all sorts of wisdom, all sorts of understanding. They have an obvious supernatural advantage because they took natural steps to honor God. And there's a challenge for all of us here to not wait for a next stage of maturity, but to know that God responds to sanctifying steps of obedience. These guys end up 10 times better than all the others who had had the same three years of earthly training. They're actually 10 times better. It shows us a picture of what is generally true, that holiness leads us into better things. It's actually good for us. It actually impacts our life. They were actually 10 times better than the other guys, not just in a spiritual sense, but spiritual realities impact us. They really do. So even if it looks like wisdom, even if the most commonly taken route looks wise, it will always be wisdom to follow God. And where the world says, get power by fear or deal with your fear by harnessing power in some way, God responds to conviction with empowerment. He responds to holiness in that way. So we can say to the next generation, pursuing holiness is not going to ruin your life or rob your life, but it's going to lead you into life. And for those of us who are older, we don't wanna leave people to just figure this out as if holiness is just a passive byproduct of years and years and years of knowing God because you can choose holiness at 15 years old, you can choose it at 50, and it impacts our private and our public. We see that in their story. It's Daniel in his room, still praying. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to the king. It's quiet in consistency. It's loud when it needs to be. It is non-participation. I'm not going to do that, but it's also godly alternatives. It's leading them out of things, and it leads them into things, and what they say is important, and what is seen of them is important, and all of it is done for them in the context of friendship. The kings in this story, the whole way through Daniel, the kings are all over the place. And in contrast, we see that the friendship these guys have seems to be a uniquely stabilizing force. Gen Z want to find their tribe. We all want to find a sense of purpose, but we are seeing that it's not working to find our purpose in our tribe. God gives us people for the sake of our purpose. And we see purposeful friendship in the book of Daniel. It fuels their day-to-day set-apartness, and it impacts their times of crisis. In chapter one, Daniel resolves not to eat the defiled food, and he brings all of his friends in with him. I'm sure they were like, great, yes, can't wait to be tested for 10 days. But they're all tested for 10 days. They all look healthier. They're all 10 times better. They all receive wisdom from God. And when Daniel is rewarded, he says, hey, promote these guys too, and they're all promoted. In God-centered friendships, sometimes we will be the one to lead. Sometimes we will follow. Daniel shows us that leaders bring people with them. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this moment show us that having the humility and the willingness to follow can lead us to then share in the breakthrough. How often do we think if maybe our one friend has a conviction in a certain area or a particular revelation from God or they've learned something um, 
God's spoken to them. God's done something. How often do we think, oh, that's good for them? Great. Yeah. Would we, would we dare to follow them into that? <laughs> Out of friendship? Like to think, no, actually, whatever one of my friends has the highest bar in this area, I'm going to go with them. Even if it's not something that God has spoken to me directly, I'm going to go with that. Daniel and his pals are radically anti-competition because when you have competition goggles on in friendship, it's fear-based and it says things like, you know, there won't be enough for both of us, so it's me or them. I better get ahead. But if we understand the power of God, we will know there is more than enough to go around and so we will bring our friends with us and we will want to jump in on anything that our friends are experiencing of God. When they're facing death the first time, Daniel asks for time, and he goes and he gathers his friends, and he urges them to plead with the God of heaven for breakthrough. And Daniel alone receives the answer in the night. He receives the answer from God. But as he's praising God, he says, you have made known to us the dream of the king. He's not like, thanks for praying, guys, but here's my, this is my goodness. No, he knows that his breakthrough is their breakthrough. Him hearing from God is them hearing from God. In chapter two, crisis is miraculously avoided. They do not die, praise God. In chapter three, crisis is miraculously endured. We see the intervention of God work in both ways in this story, just like it does in our lives. And in both instances, these guys are with their friends. So quick takeaways would be that it's not shallow or wrong or secondary to pursue God-centered friendships. They're a gift from God, for God. But also, God-centered friendships aren't so that we can close a little circle around ourselves. They're not for our own comfort. But they're given to us by God to lead us into the plans and purposes of God. So a life of conviction in the context of friendship because we understand God's power. I think as voices in the next generation, we need to shine a light again on God's power. Younger generations have a renewed interest in the occult, but this is not new. You read through the New Testament, there's many cultures there that were in the habit of practicing magic in order to manipulate powers. More than ever, though, we need a revelation of what King Nebuchadnezzar glimpses when he says, okay, you're servants of the most high God. What other God can save in this way? But in this context, in the book of Daniel, where power was proven by these big displays, it's maybe not surprising that that is when King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God, because he's seen God do something impossible. But what is most surprising is these words. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the crux of the story. The God we serve is able but they don't know how, they don't know in what way he will, but they say, even if he does not, their faith is ultimately in him, in what they know of his power, whether or not it's about to be displayed in the way that they would like it to be. 
And I know that this is a constant reshifting that needs to happen on the inside of me. But what would it be like for a fear power generation to become completely convinced in the power of God above all other powers and to have a friendship with him that does not like, depend on displays of that power, but to have a friendship with him that would say, even if you don't do what I want you to do, I will only worship you. To have an understanding of God that works that way before the grief, before the crisis, before adulthood even, because so often it's harder to work it out on the other side. I want to be known as a friend of God, but I know that true, pure friendship is unconditional, which means that to be a friend of God, I want to cry that same thing. Even if he does not do what I want him to do, I will only worship him. What if that was the cry of a generation? Rejecting other powers that might imitate what God can do for a time or for a price because they've come to know the real power that God has over their fear, over their shame, over guilt, over death, over every evil scheme. Power that conquers because it comes down. That's what we see in this story. A fourth man in the fire and they are saved. Jesus came down and he turned our understanding of power on its head because his big golden statue was his death on a cross. So that, First John tells us, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He came to overpower all other powers, all fear, all shame, all death, every evil scheme, but how he did it was death on a cross. He came as a servant. He came and washed his friend's feet. He touched those who were considered unclean. He came low and he came with love and he came to show us that that is what God is like. And that is what God's power is like. And he empowers us now with his presence. In Daniel's story and in our world, it's all about earthly powers demanding our attention. But the gospel is that there is an all-powerful God in heaven who's paying attention to you. And through us now, because of Jesus, because God now comes and dwells within us, he will demonstrate his power through us. As we walk into fires, as we walk out of fires, and the satraps, prefects, governors, provincial officials of our time will gather around and they will say, who is this God? What is this power? I propose, church, that we are ludicrously hopeful for the next generation. I propose that we are a praying church for the next generation and we champion them because we believe actually they are spiritually open and they are ready and they are searching and we have a message for them. A challenge today, really simple challenge is find someone in the next generation, find someone younger than you, and champion them. Pray for them, support them, copy them. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. 
And thank you, God, that no matter what we are facing in this life right now, God, I know there's going to be things in this room, Lord, where people feel like they need to know that greater power that you have. Thank you that no matter what we are facing in this life, by the Holy Spirit today in us, we can say, even if, by the Holy Spirit in the room today, we can know that you are God who is present with us. And Lord, I thank you that all throughout Scripture, throughout history, we see that you do not hold back from displaying your power. It's just not where it comes from. It's not what it depends upon. But God, would you come and would you help us to know your power today in our own situations, in our own needs, Lord. Come and be present, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.